All right, you can be seated, please. And Shane is going to gather our artifact for us this morning. See if he knows what it is. Shane's a pretty sharp guy. He might be able to figure this out. We had uh, Zayden Kleinsaucer found this in the first service, and he didn't have a clue what this was. Do you have any idea what this is? It's a sensor for incense. You are right. <laughs> Way to go. Did you hear what he said? He said it's a sensor for incense, and he's right. Now, this one is interesting because it happens to have a cross on the top of it, not uh, any kind of Jewish symbol or something. So it doesn't have specifically to do with the Jewish faith and the uh, worship that might have gone on in the temple. But we could say that this represents in some way this ancient artifact of a censer that would be pulled out of the ancient sands and could represent that which went on in the ancient temple and in the tabernacle as the Jews were in the business of worshiping God. And there were all kinds of injunctions in the Bible that asked them to do just that kind of thing. And when I say that kind of thing, I mean to worship God in that way. In fact, if I was to ask you, what do you think of when you think of Old Testament worship? It's very possible that the list you're going to come up to is going to look like this. Josh, can you move me forward there? Perfect. Maybe I'll do it from now on. We'll see if it works. Ritual, Sabbath, animal sacrifice, the careful keeping of commands. That is typically how we think of Old Testament worship. So if I was to ask one of you, so tell me about Old Testament worship, you'd probably start saying, well, they made sacrifices in the temple and there was bloodshed and there was, a, there was an altar there and... Uh, the blood actually ran off the altar, and there was an Ark of the Covenant and all kinds of things. And if you were talking about all those things, I might say, oh, well, you must have been reading your Bible. In fact, you must have been looking at something like Exodus chapter 25. And so I'd like you to turn there if you would. And if there happens to be a Bible underneath the seats in front of you, you might want to look at that one if you don't have something like an NIV that has the headings in it. Because all we're going to do right now is just kind of flip through and see some of these headings And it's quite interesting what we find. Exodus chapter 25, and this isn't the only place in the Old Testament where we could find this, but we certainly can find it here. So it's on page 58 if you're looking at the Bibles underneath the seats. And just notice, like Exodus chapter 25, at the heading there, it says, Offerings for the Tabernacle. And then that's what it's going to talk about. Obviously, it's going to talk about those kinds of offerings. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 1 verses uh, uh, through chapter 7, you would find the same kind of thing in terms of description of the offerings. Then if you, f- if you continue on, like right above verse 23, this Bible that I'm looking at says the table. And above verse 31, it says the lampstand. And then above chapter 26 verse 1, it says the tabernacle. And then if you look above chapter 27, it says the altar of burnt offering. And then it talks about the courtyard. And if I can get these pages apart, there we go. Oil for the lampstand is above verse 29 in chapter 27. The priestly garments, the breastpiece, other priestly garments, consecration of the priests. There are all kinds of headings here in all of these different sections which are describing 
different facets of the worship that was going on in the Old Testament. Specifically, it had to do with the tabernacle. Chapter 30, right above that, it says the altar of incense, which fits perfectly with our little artifact over here in terms of doing something with incense in the course of Old Testament worship. And then it talks about atonement money, a basin for washing, anointing oil. Flip over to chapter 35. And just above chapter 35, you're going to find Sabbath regulations, materials for the tabernacle. Chapter 36 is going to describe the tabernacle. Chapter 37 is going to talk about the ark and the table again. The lampstand, the altar of incense again, the altar of burnt offering, and all of that goes through chapter 40 or so. All these descriptions of worship in the Old Testament, which really was quite ritualistic. So there are, there are 12 chapters just here. And, and again, we could go several places in the Pentateuch in the first five chapters or first five books of the Old Testament to see different things having to do with worship. But here, in this place, there are 12 chapters devoted specifically to just the implements, the elements that one would use in the worship of God. And so it makes sense that we would have in our minds words like ritual or words like sacrifice when it comes to talking about Old Testament worship because it's what they did. My question this morning is, is that all it's supposed to be? And was that really the center of all that they were doing? Now, we know that if you don't carry out these commands, if the Jews didn't carry out these commands as they're indicated here in these chapters, there were consequences. This was not good. If you don't carry out these these commands the way that God intended them to be carried out, it could be that death will be the result. Like you could turn to Leviticus chapter 10, we won't do that right now, but Nadab and Abihu offer some fire to God that wasn't authorized and something's wrong there. And because they do that, God ends their lives. So God was taking very seriously this whole thing of sacrifice and worship and intended for it to be carried out very carefully. And they needed to take it seriously. What's interesting for this morning that I want us to see is that even though that's the case, it seems to me there there is something that stands behind all of that that might even be more important, in fact, is quite more important than the actual commands themselves and the carrying out of those commands. And I'll show you what I mean. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 19. 484 in the Bibles that are underneath the seats. In fact, it's interesting, you know, I won't do a lot with this this morning, but if, like if you go back to Leviticus 10 and you look at Nadab and Abihu and what happens with them, you just ask the question, what was really going on there? Like, what was wrong? And I think there's a lot more than just they said, well, there's some fire that we're going to offer to God, and, you know, it's the wrong fire, not supposed to offer fire or whatever. It seems to me that there is a decision that they make that's grounded in some... Something else, some kind of lack, something present in their lives that was supposed to be there that wasn't. And I think that this passage starts to give us a clue. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, and this is surprising, look what he says next. What are they to me, says the Lord. Now that seems to be in a bit contrast to 
what we just saw. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Now, it's interesting because we would say, well, you did. God, you're the one who asked us to do these things. So what's wrong that they are doing these things and he's not pleased? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, and this is amazing to me. Just think about this now. God says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. This will sound familiar after the last few weeks here. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the Lamb. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This is interesting stuff in light of all of those commands that we're supposed to, or that the Jews were supposed to keep in terms of uh, worship to the Lord. These sacrifices actually somehow become for him detestable. He says at one point, I hate them. Like, stop this, please. Which indicates to me that, indeed, of course, something is wrong. And I, and I think that what God is saying is that in the midst of offering all these sacrifices, what I don't have is you, you worshiper. What I don't have is you. And James Mooney just now, as he was sitting here, just went like this. Okay? Which means that God doesn't have their hearts. And that is so much the point of what's going on here. How they, on the one hand, are called to participate in all these sacrifices, and on the other hand, clearly, God does not have their hearts. So I want you to look at this passage. Psalm 51, verses 15 and 16. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. This is the psalmist talking. This just isn't anybody. This is David who knows the heart of God. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And this puts worship and the worshiper in a completely different place than just keeping some ritual. Somebody, I can't even remember who this was, somebody this morning, Jonathan, maybe it was you, in the course of the morning mentioned uh, a line from Psalm 47, verse 1, that says, clap your hands to the Lord. And it's a line right out of the Psalms, which was the, the song book of the Jewish people. And what's clear is that worship isn't just to be a clapping of the hands, 
But it isn't ex- it's expressed by that when the heart is engaged and we give ourselves completely to God and devoting ourselves to God, it comes out in various ways. Clapping is one way. Singing at the top of your lungs is another. But it's got to be at your heart engaged in fullness in order for it to be the kind of worship that God wants it to be. And so our sacrifice becomes to God not just the blood of a bull, but instead a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That's what God really wants from us. Look at this passage. You might know this one well. We read this quite often, Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Shall I come and make the sacrifices? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, ones that I've, I've given over to God? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Well, you'd think he would. He made all those commands requesting that we sacrifice all these things. You'd think that they would just so please him, but they don't. In fact, you could give, her your, you could give your firstborn child to God. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And of course, the answer to all of these questions is, this is not going to do it. This is not what God is going to be pleased with. Instead, verse 8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Because ultimately what God wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants this way more that he wants any kind of ritualistic activity in which you can participate. God, in the Old Testament even, wants us. He wants us to give ourselves completely to him. Uh, yeah. One last passage here. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And again, this has to do with where your mind is at. It has to do with your heart. And has nothing to do, actually, it doesn't have to do anything, with various ritualistic acts. And so we might conclude so far this morning with something like this. Worship in the Old Testament was largely and ritual was sorry, was largely ritualistic and legalistic. In appearance. But clearly, it is so much more. In fact, we might say some other things like the context for worship is always the prior acts of God. Which means that it's God's grace. It's His mighty acts of love and graciousness which begin to impact me. I'm changed when I look at what God has done, when I, when I recount the things that God has done in my life or what God has done even in the, all of the history of Israel, something changes in me. My heart's impacted by that. And I then begin to respond in faith and thankfulness, gratitude for what it is that God has done. Worship in the Old Testament is intended to be actually, and this sounds strange when you first say it, all of life. And also included heart, soul, and emotions. So when the psalmist cries out, praise the Lord. 
or when he just claps with joy, or when the psalmist writes, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. He says those things because all of life is supposed to be caught up in who God is, where we give ourselves completely to Him. So there's no special time when we come just on a Sunday morning, and there wasn't a special time just for the Jews when they would come together on a Sabbath, and that becomes for them worship. Because all of life is supposed to be a worship given over to Him. Obedience and worship is always, first, obedience of the heart. And obedience of action only follows after the heart has already been given over to Him. And that's how worship needs to be. That's how worship was then. And of course, that's how worship is supposed to be now. You know, the fact is, as we move in to talk about worship in the New Testament, that there aren't that many guidelines or practices in the New Testament. In direct contrast to the Old, it's fascinating to me. We already saw in the Old Testament, in Exodus 25 through 40, there are 12 chapters devoted specifically to all the things that they were supposed to do in worship. You simply don't find anything like that in the New Testament. Like, there's no place where you can say, Paul... Tell me all about how we're supposed to worship. And Paul says, okay, here's three chapters on how we're supposed to worship. Not there. You could say to Peter, Peter, can you give me two chapters on how we're supposed to conduct ourselves on Sunday morning in worship? It's not there. And so you don't have it in Paul. You don't have it in Peter. Maybe you can look in John. Uh, You're not going to find it in John. And so finally you say, maybe Jesus established for us all the rules for worship when it comes to Christian worship. And you look in Jesus, you look through the Gospels, and what do you find? Nothing like that. Nothing. Like there just is no section of Scripture devoted to how it is that we're going to order ourselves on, uh, in worship on Sunday morning. There are very few strictures on how it is to happen. Now, we do have some things. We know we're supposed to take the Lord's Supper. And I'm grateful that we do. But it's interesting, the one thing that's supposed to not happen when we take the Lord's Supper is that it become for us mere ritual, which is really unfortunate because that's what happens. Like, if I just ask you this morning, if I just said, okay, uh, a little while ago, Michael got up and he talked about the Lord's Supper and he shared for a bit and we prayed and we took the bread and we prayed and we took the juice how many of you during the time that it happened were 100% engaged? How many, how many of you were absolutely engaged in the Lord's Supper and focused completely on it during the whole time? Now, if you were, praise the Lord. I'm glad you were. But the fact is, it is hard for us to do that. This becomes, unfortunately for us oftentimes, ritualistic. We go through the motions. The very thing that God doesn't want to have happen when we participate in acts of worship. One of the things that bothers me about the Roman Catholic Church is the Roman Catholic Church has made the Mass, communion, absolutely the whole center of what they do. Now, I think it's good to make communion extremely important in what you do, but when it becomes ritualized and all the words are there for me on a piece of paper and I go through a series of acts and motions without the heart and the mind really being engaged, then I think we're defeating all that God had in mind when He planned for us to worship Him. He wants something different 
than that. And that's why we don't have all kinds of rules about how we're supposed to worship on Sunday morning. God knows exactly what we would do with that. Pretty soon you'd say, well, you got to do this, and 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 we would go through all the motions. And unfortunately, that would become very quickly very ritualistic. And so we can search the New Testament, and there just isn't that kind of list. Instead, what we find is that the heart and the life is supposed to be completely given over to God and completely engaged. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 11. And if you don't turn there, you can look at it on the screen. Uh, there is, like, what I've done here is, is kind of cool, I think. Um, not because I did it, but just, it's just a cool thing to do. I took out all the chapter markings and the verses so that it all runs together. And what's happening here is that in, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is talking about all the wonderful things that God has done through Christ. And especially he's talking about how the, there's an old Israel, but the old Israel has become a new Israel, and the new Israel is combined of both Jew and Gentile, and we're all united together in the Lord in one body, and we're all praising Him together. So it's a wonderful thing that God has done. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul is so thrilled with what it is that, God's, that God has done, he just bursts forth into praise. Now, this is called a doxology. You, you've probably heard that word. There's a song, actually, that we sometimes sing, doxology. You know that song? Praise God from whom all blessings. Well, the reason it's called doxology is because the word doxos is the word for praise or to glorify. So to, to give God glory, to glorify Him and give Him praise, that's called a doxology. And Paul is writing along in Romans 11. He's writing some great things about what God has done for His people. And all of a sudden, he's just so caught up in it that he just bursts into this doxology at the end of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given God that God should repay them? He's quoting some lines here, and is just, he's just filled with all these beautiful things that God has done for humankind. For from him, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Just this beautiful expression of praise, and it really is beautiful. But then there's a therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the point for this morning is that this has been the case since the beginning. When the law first came into existence and God gave it to human beings and they started making sacrifices, what God wanted was this. What he got sometimes was ritual. And the heart wasn't necessarily engaged. And God wants the heart to be engaged to the point that all of life becomes for us an act of worship. All of life is to be that time when we worship the God. That's why we said a few weeks ago, there's no such thing of celebrating the Sabbath because all of life becomes a Sabbath. Every day now is devoted to Him. And this is what God asks of us. Now this morning, 
You had no warning. So you could have easily come here this morning, participated in the, in the songs that we've sung today, and even participated in the Lord's Supper in a way that was incredibly ritualistic for you. It might have been that it, you know, you kind of, you know the word perfunctory? You just went through the actions in a perfunctory way. You just got them done. I pray not, but that's possible. But there is another Sunday coming. <laughs> There are more times when we're going to be able to share together in the Lord's Supper. And there is a whole new week that we've just embarked on. Week of service to the Lord. A a week of Sabbath moments where you set aside these times specifically for Him. Because it's all for Him. And that, I think, is what God desires out of us when it comes to worship. What he wants more than anything is you. What he wants is your heart. He wants your life to be given over to him. And when we've done that, we have entered into, I think, what we would call true worship. It was there in the Old Testament. Just as much in one sense as it is in the New God wants our whole selves. He wants our hearts in worship to Him. I pray that you have the response of giving to God all yourself in true worship. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to something uh, high and lofty. You've called us to a kind of worship that goes way beyond ritualistic acts. We still have some things that we need to do in worship, Lord, but what you desire more than anything is for anything we do to be done with all our hearts in devotion to you. And then, Father, we pray that life would not be, uh, that a moment would go by in our lives where you're not thought of and recognized where what we're doing is not somehow given over as worship to you, our true spiritual worship. Please make that the case for us as well. Help us to give our our minds, our hearts, our lives to you. We pray through Jesus. Amen.